The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 53 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on the show are my own. I'm not my president or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment. And I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearance as I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. And nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at the very cool website, www.cshub.com. Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest interesting news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out our recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So the show last week just rocked. It's another, another week of record listeners. It's a record listenership. I think that's like five weeks in a row. I know we have five months in a row of increased listenership. I think it's pretty exciting not only to have some of the top cybersecurity professionals in the world on the show, but to have them from different sectors and different backgrounds and all this different experience and just to be able to tap into that and just, you know, tap into their knowledge and experience is just pretty awesome. And I'm feeling pretty lucky to be in this position right now. Um, I've had some really, really good guests on this show uh, over the last 12 months. And I guess the years of returning phone calls and keeping my word and standing my ground and consistently executing has paid off for me big time because the, the information that we're able to glean from these experts on the show has been nothing short of fantastic. I mean, having Mike Higgins on the show last week is one of the most senior and successful information security executives in the media and entertainment industry was a reminder of the deep, deep network that we have here at Task Force 7. We have a lot of tier one executives that have been on this show. And I know that I learn something every time they come on. And I got a ton of great feedback on the interview with Mike. A lot of people respect him. A lot of people listen to what he has to say. The response on social media was fantastic. So I know a lot of listeners took something away from the show, and I can't wait to have him back on the show some more to talk some more shop sometime soon. So if you missed last week's show, you can listen to it anytime on playback, wherever you are in the world, folks. It's a great listen, whether you're in the car, maybe in the train, or for your commute, on the way to work. I wouldn't miss it. Mike really knows his business. That's Mike Higgins appearing on episode number 52 of Task Force 7 Radio. Well, if you're listening to us live on Voice America right now, or maybe someone just sent you the link to this episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to all the previous Task Force 7 radio episodes on playback. So you can find Task Force 7 Radio on a total of nine different playback mediums, including iTunes.com, Google Play, TuneIn.com, Stitcher.com, Player.fm, Overcast.fm, ListenNotes.com, the show's very own website at TaskForce7Radio.com, and, of course, the number one Internet talk radio producer in the world at voiceamerica.com. 
So all in all, nine different options to get your TF7 radio fixed. We're everywhere, folks. You can't miss us. If you Google Task Force 7 Radio, you get all your options. Check us out. TF7 Radio Playback at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, please, please, please don't forget to subscribe. I see we got a lot of subscribers out there. we got a lot of five stars. I really, really appreciate uh, the reviews, folks. I mean, it's been overwhelmingly a, a five-star review. And we just love it when you subscribe and give us those five stars. So thanks so much for doing that. So we, we have a, a Task Force 7 radio alumnus and favorite back on the show with us tonight. None other than Adriana Sanford is going to be with us. And we're going to talk about something a little bit different tonight. We're going to mix it up a little bit until how cybersecurity really gets into some of these global threats that we're seeing in this evolving security landscape on a global basis, really. And, you know, with the disturbing trend of these terror attacks over the last decade and governments all over the world, scrambling to protect their national interest, it only seems fit that we have this discussion. So in an interconnected world, this can sometimes be at the expense of in individual freedoms when we, I guess, uh, implement some of these security controls that we have, just like we do in business. And when we think about it on a global basis and in terms of, you know, our, our rights and, you know, people's rights and their privacy, then individual freedoms can be affected by some security measures that we put in place. So while much has been discussed in the realm of privacy and the basic right to privacy in some countries, our tech companies, executives, and lawyers have been exposed to real threats that merit attention, including executives' concerns with criminal prosecution that results from their em employers' noncompliance with laws of foreign territories, and so on and so on and so on. So in this segment, we'll discuss some of these issues specifically, what role cybersecurity plays in these battles, and we're gonna discuss the global ramifications of multi-jurisdictional conflicts under this new security landscape. And really, there's no one better to do that than cybersecurity legal expert, Adriana Sanford. So Adriana, welcome back to the show once again. Thanks, George. Uh, I, love, uh, I love coming on and um Look forward to today's show. So we're, we're very uh, happy to have you. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to uh, come on with us. Uh, I know you're always busy. We've actually been trying to do this for some time now since your last appearance, but uh, I know how busy you are. I appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. First off, how are all my friends out at LMU and Pepperdine University? Everybody, everybody doing well out there? The students are doing well. They enjoy the show, and um, and, and and we welcome the opportunity to to be with you here on uh, on this show. So it's uh, it's all good. Well, that's great. So I want to jump right into this. New Zealand recently passed a law that requires travel to reveal their device passwords. Right. So can you discuss for for our audience here? Uh, when we talk about New Zealand specifically, the mandatory decryption requirements from a global perspective and how other countries handling this issue uh, deal with the problem. Sure. What you're talking about is a digital strip search. And New Zealand now, if you're a foreigner or if you're a, a citizen from that country, uh, the authorities have a right to request uh, not only your cell phone, but any devices. They can basically request uh, those devices, and they can request that you give them the passwords, the codes, the encryption keys. Um, so it's, it's really, really different. They need to do this, though. They need a reasonable um, cause to suspect there's an issue. 
in order to ask you for all of this information, but if if they deem that it's necessary, they can actually get this from you. Um, and if you don't give it to them, there can be a $3,000 fine. So it's a pretty big deal. So what are some of the multi-jurisdictional legal concerns around this? I mean, we, we think about how this affects people from different countries and, and, and you know, I guess the different concerns uh, from around the world, not just from the United States. Well, it's a huge concern because, as you know, in other countries, we have what's called the basic fundamental right to privacy. In the United States, we don't have this, but in the EU, we have it. And if you're asking somebody to turn over all of their information, um, and that's basically what you're doing, because if you're asking them for their phone, um, most people carry a lot of information about their personal life, their doctor's records or emails, you know, absolutely everything, where, where they're going to have dinner. So if you're asking them to turn that over, other countries are going to have a problem with that because you're violating that basic human right. The EU is going to have an issue with this because their European citizens under the GDPR are supposed to be protected wherever they go. And if you've got the ability to take or uh, remove or detain a device and have the data copied um, or even cloned, we've got a problem. Or they have a problem. <laughs> right, right. So back here in the United States, this is nothing, nothing new, but it's something that really I don't think has been settled in terms of we've had some recent search warrants and electronic gag orders produced by the courts uh, that have been applied for by law enforcement agencies and have resulted in high-profile confrontations and debates here in the States between the government and some of our tech giants. So from a global perspective, could you discuss some of the multi-jurisdictional legal concerns around that here? Right. Well, the issue is in, in the United States, basically the companies got together, a lot of the companies got together and they said this isn't right because when you're asking for information, basically from the tech companies, they were also asking that they not tell the customer. So in effect, that was an electronic gag order and sometimes they were unlimited. Um, there was no time frame. It's so they were ongoing and this is a violation of... Um, of our rights of our usually with a search you know that the search is going on and in this particular case you didn't know this and the companies are not able to to give out any information so we resolve that here in this country to a certain degree because basically there came an, an arrangement between the tech companies and the government that certain information could be disclosed uh, to the to the to the users the issue, though, is we are by, kind of bypassing this with this new legislation that we're seeing, what's called the Five Eyes Alliance, which is the U.S., the U.K., Canada, uh, New Zealand, and Australia, basically are taking another approach. Instead of, um, instead of this, what they're doing now is they're just coming out with this le new legislation, which says, hey, we want to take a look at the data. This is a way that we would like to confront the organized crime and, and terrorism. So we've kind of shifted into a different realm where maybe we're not going to see as much with regards to the gag orders because basically they're saying, we're going to do this. And, uh, you know, a, a good example is, is what's going on with, with Australia. Australia proposed a decryption law and Apple basically sent a seven page later uh, letter saying that this was going to weaken security and privacy for citizens and make them more vulnerable for the the cyber attacks. Well, 
it wasn't just Australia that did this. You see what's going on with New Zealand and their mandatory decryption. And we also see what's happening in the UK, you know, with the Snoopers Charter and all of their legislation. So you're starting to see that countries are, depending on how they view their, uh, their approach to defending um, their country and, and national security, they're taking different approaches to, to fighting terrorism. And some of them are taking this approach which is, is basically what the, the U.S. has been doing the, with the mass surveillance and, and saying we need to access. We need access to uh, what we call the encrypted chat. All right. So if somebody, you know, as it's playing out here, and I guess there hasn't been a real high-profile example uh, since the last one out in California where we had a terrorist um, situation where the FBI wanted to get into a deceased terrorists' uh, iPhone. Um, and so I think w when I think about this, and I've had people on the show before, people are, you know, even some of the, the biggest law enforcement uh, executives or the former executives in the country who have been on the show seem to be coming out on the side of privacy of the individual over the authority of the government to uh, issue a warrant or, if, and I guess, induce the the technology company to provide them with some type of backdoor assistance in obtaining access to that device. Where do, where do you stand on, on that issue? Like, where, where, what do you stand? Do you stand on the side of privacy or on the side of security? I, I think, you know, to answer that question, it depends on your values and it depends on your priorities and, and different cultures will look at this differently. If you're talking to somebody who believes in the fundamental basic human right of privacy, you're violating that right. However, you have to balance that with, is this a modern investigative technique? Is this the best way to stamp out uh, terrorism and organized crime. And it depends on the country. Because in Chile, for example, we don't have um, a lot of terrorism and organized crime. So in that country, they would view it a little bit different than probably the way we would view it in, in the United States. So, so it just depends on, um, on cultures and, and our approaches. Our approaches to fighting these, these global threats are different. So I don't really... You know, I, I don't speak for or against any one of them. I would just say that we need to realize that our our allies, some of our allies actually do believe in a fundamental human right, and these are borderless crimes. So in order for us to be successful, we need to be cooperating, and we need to realize that the vulnerabilities that we have um, the only way to protect ourselves is basically if we align ourselves. And um, without that, it's, it's, it's very difficult to fight, uh, to fight this battle. Yeah, I know that in, in, the, in, the, in the cybersecurity space, you know, there's not too many professionals out there that think that if we ever provided uh, the government with a back door to some of these technologies, that that would stay secret for very long and these technologies would be secure for very long. It would defeat some of their business models. And, and then you have the whole fundamental right to privacy, like you said, but, you know, when you talk about mores and values and where you sit, of course, I think a lot of people want to uh, retain the privacy, uh, uh, I guess, rules and laws that we enjoy here in the United States now, but also they want to put terrorists in jail and they don't want terrorists to get away with, you know, killing, you know, dozens of people. Uh, so, 
it's such a difficult uh, problem. Balance. You know, I, I, it is a very difficult balance. Um, you know, when you look at the ramifications of what happens downstream of any of the decisions that we make today, um, I, I've noticed that, you know, at least on the show, most of the people on the show come out on the privacy side um, of this debate. And I, I guess, you know, I talked to some current and, and, and uh, FBI and Secret Service agents still, and, and wow, they're just like, you know, we need access to this stuff to do our jobs, right? And so I totally get that. Being a former Secret Service agent, I, I completely relate to that. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just, a, it's just a real tough. Well, and, and, and the issue is basically in, in our country here in the United States, you know, we believe in the power of individual liberty, freedom of expression, free markets, and privacy. I mean, those are some of our core principles. So for us to look at this, um, you know, I think this is why it's become such a hot topic in this country, because the the steps that were taken with the Snowden revelation, you know, we realized that, that our our investigative approaches were, were not um, being disclosed, and, and and I can understand why, because if, if you're fighting basically the terrorists and uh, organized criminals, you, you want to you want to do that without really revealing, you know, your, your process. So we're going to see more emerging threats coming up and, you know, the, the ability to detect and respond um, and actually then recover from the incidents is, is, is difficult. So, so there are challenges. And I think the most important thing is, you know, we need to, to figure out how to control our networks and how to engage the private sector because right now the private sector has so many cyber attacks and, and they're paying ransoms. And, you know, this is, uh, this is concerning because the, the terrorists may end up using this instead of um, right now the, the hottest area for terrorist financing has been counterfeiting. It used to be charities, then it went to drugs, then it went to counterfeiting. And, and my concern is that this may now be the new space where uh, terrorist financing starts to really, really develop if it hasn't already. And so uh, we need to work together and, and the private sector needs to be aware that this is uh, – these global threats evolve very, very quickly and, uh, and uh, in different areas, in different pockets. You know, I was, gonna, I was just going to go to break, but, you know, you, you brought up a really good point, so I'm just going to run this segment a little bit longer because this, the, the payment of some of these, these ransoms is a really big issue. I've, I've mentioned it before on the show. I know the, the FBI has come out and advised people not to pay these ransoms. Um, I know companies do, but it, it, I guess here's the dilemma. You have these small to medium-sized companies who have their data encrypted by, by bad guys. They, in order to get the keys back, they have to pay a ransom so they can get all their information back. If they don't get their information back, the company basically ceases to exist. Now, the flip side of that coin is they don't know who they're giving the money to, as you mentioned, and, and, and it could be terrorists, it could be organized crime, uh, it could be all kinds of nefarious groups that are using that money towards anti-American interest, in, in, including terrorist attacks, um, and all kinds of bad things. You don't know what you're financing there. So from a legal perspective, what are the concerns for these small companies who hire security firms who advise them to, you know, you have to pay the ransom. There's no way we can get into your data. There's no way we can get your data back unless you pay the ransom and get the keys to your information so that your company can survive. I, I would say 
uh, you, you've got a lot of liability if you're doing something like that, criminal liability, because what's going to happen at the end of the day is if these are rogue states or terrorists and or criminal networks and you are giving them money and you say, okay, well, it was because if it was a ransom, um, keep in mind that in the past, the DOJ um, and the SEC has, the regulators in general have really uh, penalized companies, uh, major fines for, for this behavior. And it's no different if you're, if you're on the ground and have a physical presence and you're, you're, you're paying for security by paying off terrorists or, 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 or criminals uh, than if you're doing this in cyberspace. So, so no, you should not be doing this. And the, the concern is that if we don't know who you're paying, obviously they're bad actors, they're, 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 they're bad people um, or bad companies because they wouldn't be doing this in the first place. The extent of how serious it is, we don't know, but it could undermine our economy, it could undermine our democracy, uh, they could steal our intellectual property. There's so much that could happen and, and, and our national security. So anybody who is advising someone to pay those ransoms rather than going to the government, um, you're in, yeah, that's, that's really bad. So um, no, I would say you, you need to stay away, stay clear from that. And don't forget, you know, in the same way that we've had issues with counterfeiting in the past, our companies would turn a blind eye to counterfeiting. Well, now the government, we have an IP czar that actually shoulders the costs for companies and helps them in fighting uh, counter, in fighting the the counterfeiting. And the same thing should be done with regards to these ransoms. Uh, these are global threats, and anybody who attempts to take this on by themselves is really making a mistake because this is a lot bigger than that company. This has to do with uh, protecting and defending our nation and our networks and and our grid. I mean, it's it, it can be very very serious, and you don't know who you're dealing with. So I would I would advise those companies to get an attorney um, and uh, and and before they pay any ransoms, you know we we did see Uber. We've seen a few companies do this, and. In short term, maybe they'll get their data back. Long term, it affects their reputation, and uh, they can get class actions. You know, if, if they're publicly traded, there's there's a lot of um, of negativity that is associated with that. Not to mention criminal liability. Right. I mean, Uber was a little bit different. You know, that was a, a special program that they had that I think a lot of companies maybe have at least paused right now to reconsider how they're structuring those programs to pay people to find vulnerabilities in their own. Um, in their own operations, as opposed to someone coming in and, and, and basically encrypting your entire, you know, um, database of all your information and not, you know, not being able to get to it, which is, but you're right. I mean, you're, when these people decide to pay, they're paying, um, they're paying criminals. They're committing a criminal act against you. So, you know, they're bad guys. So, you know, you're paying, uh, you know, you're paying the bad guys. It's just a, just a tremendously difficult um, conversation to have because some of these companies, you know, they're small, but they're, I mean, they're, you know, they're huge real estate firms that are out there that are just have been hit with this. And I mean, all kinds of, all kinds of companies, but I just, I'm, I'm aware of a whole bunch of companies. And, you know, when you read about it, um, that are just been, they'll be devastated if they don't give these, these keys back. And sometimes, you know, the, the bad guys don't make the, the ransom, the, you know, really uh, unaffordable. They make it affordable where it's like, okay, we could afford to pay this to save our business relative to saving our business. Um, you know, it's just, I don't know. It's just, it's going to be an ongoing debate. I know that. Um, 
Well, and, and, and the issue is, you know, a large part of the world has embraced America's vision of, you know, an open cyberspace uh, for the benefit of all. But you have to realize there are countries out there and there are people out there that are actually using the Internet um, to hurt, to hurt others and to disrupt. And they, these are the ones, these malicious groups are the ones that we have to be careful with. And if you turn a blind eye, you're encouraging them basically to continue to do this. We've got to be in a space where we can actually function. And if not, our internet is going to completely change. So to the extent you're paying those ransoms, um, rather than seeking help, um, and what I mean by help is, is is either turning to our government or the regulators or someone, um, you're making us more vulnerable. Yeah. But, the, but the, you know, and I don't disagree. I don't disagree with, you know, the bad effects of actually paying the ransom, right? The problem is that, you know, the government can't do anything for these people. I mean, these people are overseas. Sometimes they're unreachable. They're in, they're in countries that we can't, that we, you know, we can't reach out and grab people. Um, we don't even have any kind of, you know, subpoena power or anyway, any kind of judicial warrants that we could issue. There's nothing that you could really do from that perspective and for actually, uh, you know, grabbing these people. And the other thing is the encryption can't be decrypted. So Right, right. Well, and the other issue is even if you know what country they're coming from, there's something new out there, which is basically they're asking, they're paying other individuals to give up their IP addresses so that they can use their IP addresses, and we don't know for what. So so you may end up finding their IP address, and it actually belongs to a, uh, you know, to, to a college student. Um, so this is a concern because you're not going to catch the bad guys. You're going to end up, you know, having a, a, a situation that um, – that's really, really difficult. Um, it's difficult to enforce the laws if there are laws, and it's also difficult to catch them because they're using other people that are naive or vulnerable um, and are, are willing to make money and not understand the implications of what of their actions. The same thing happens with uh, with uh, money laundering in general, with the money mules, and they they hire a lot of times they'll hire the youth and ask them to open a bank account and then funnel money and use their banks, their bank account to to funnel their their operations. So we're starting to see this more and more with within this space as well. Yeah, so we're going to pause for some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, cybersecurity legal expert, Adriana Sanford. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Lab Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response Technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Lab's Inkman SOAR platform. Leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time, maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. Inkman SOAR acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. Streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today. Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash GF7 to request a look at Inkman SOAR live in action. 
Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover life cycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, cybersecurity legal expert. Adriana Sanford. So, Adriana, we were talking in the first segment of the show about mass surveillance demands and the ongoing struggle uh, with these demands across the globe. I want to ask you, do, do you see this struggle in other countries as much as you see it maybe here in the United States? And if so, where, where is it? Yes, we definitely are seeing struggles with the concept with the mass surveillance programs. There are certain countries that believe that mass surveillance is is probably one of the best ways of targeting the terrorists and the organized crime. Um, That would be, well, not only the U.S., but Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and of course the U.K., The UK is struggling with their program because what they have is it's it's under the investigative uh, investigatory powers bill and uh, it's also known as a snoopers charter. Basically, what they've said is that they're going to go ahead and 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 have their intelligence services uh, search and examine uh, records and they want the tech companies to assist with this and to store information at least 12 months. That would include your browsing history, your emails, IP addresses, all that information. Now, this Snoopers Charter and their mass surveillance program, basically, um, the European Court of uh, Justice said no, that this was a violation of the basic fundamental human right, which, of course, UK citizens also have. And the European Court of Human Rights last uh Last month said yes, this is invalid. This this rule, uh, this law is actually unlawful. So they're struggling with this because what the country wants to do is not what the region is saying is permitted, and there this is a violation of their own citizens' right to privacy. The, the one of the big issues here uh, is is they're saying that there's not enough protection for journalists, and so that would violate also another right, which is the freedom of expression. So, 
Right now, we know that GDPR is in effect and everyone's sort of settling down with the new GDPR law. But in, di- in addition to the GDPR laws, there, there is a new law expected to come out in 2020 that will have significant impact on businesses because of its extraterritorial reach. So could you discuss that and what's your opinion on that? Sure, that's the CCPA. That's the California Consumer Privacy Act. And basically, that one is going to be coming out in 2020. That is a new and and, and unique legislation here in the United States that deals with privacy. But it deals with privacy for California residents. And unlike the GDPR, which is basically follows the EU citizens wherever they go, the CCPA only applies to those California residents. So if you are from Texas or or, or some other, um, live somewhere else in the United States, it doesn't apply to you. Also, the CCPA is looking basically at the commercial side. So they're not really looking at the mass surveillance. Governments can, you know, it has, it does not address government surveillance. The GDPR does. And that's one of the reasons it's such an issue right now with, uh, with the UK, because the GDPR is in effect. And in the same way that the, that the European Union wants the United States to uh, adhere to the GDPR, they're going to want the UK to adhere to this. The, the other big difference I'd say between the two is if we take a look, um, the CCPA goes a lot further with personal information than most uh, legislation that's out there. Personal information under the CCPA includes not only your IP address and and what you've purchased and you know the basic information, your address, emails, but it also um, includes your browsing history of things that maybe you looked at ads that you clicked on, uh, things that you may not have purchased, but maybe you, you left on hold, you know, you, 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 you added to your cart, um, your tendencies, your attitudes towards certain products, all that information. And basically what the CCPA says is, as a consumer, you have a right uh, not to have that information collected. You have a right to know who's collecting it and who they're sharing it with and whether they're selling it or, or, or just sharing it and uh, actually delete that information. So it really does give California residents a lot more power, but it is not the extent uh, to which we see with the GDPR and mass surveillance. So you mentioned some comparisons there for a second between GDPR and the CCPA. If you had to you know, pick one major comparison or one major difference, really, that kind of causes maybe a problem or what executives should pay extra attention to, what would that significant difference be between GDPR and the CCPA, if any? Well, I would say a concern that I see is that a lot of individuals are classifying the CCPA as a mini GDPR. And that is concerning because any company that's already prepared uh, has already prepared their policies and procedures for GDPR may say, okay, we're ready and we're fine. And no, this is completely different. So you need to look at this and you need to start working on this now because 2020 is around the corner and it takes, sometimes it takes 18 months to prepare everything. And under the CCPA, consumers are going to be able to request their information from your company. So you have to be ready. You have to have, uh, 
this all the structure already set up and they can request that that information be deleted so it's going to require you to do a lot more than just what you're doing under the GDPR it's different and you know just because it's being called a mini the only the only mini part about it is the fact that it's the first piece that we have in the United States that is leaning towards securing uh, people's privacy so do you think this new legislation is going to alleviate any of the the issues or the situations that current executives have with privacy issues? I, I think it's going to make it, it's going to help uh, the United States a little bit more because what's happening is it's anybody, any company, and, and there, there are certain limits, of course, but that is operating with California residents. So it is going to apply to companies in the United States and foreign companies in you know, so it has an extraterritorial reach, which is similar to the GDPR. And also, um, I think, you know, either other states may adopt a similar framework here in the United States, or maybe Congress will adopt a federal legislation, or just in general, the private sector is going to revise their policies. And so that's going to protect other citizens in this, you know, other residents in the United States as well. And, and the American citizen as a whole. So I think it is a positive, and I think that, you know, it's a step. Right now we're going to have to do a lot of work in order to comply with the CCPA uh, as companies, but I think in the long uh, scheme of things, it will actually be very beneficial for the companies once they have this in place and, of course, for, for our country. How about criminal prosecutions? We talked about that a little bit earlier in the show. I mean, what are the ramifications concerning criminal prosecutions when we think about the CCPA and the GDPR? Well, there are hefty fines in both. I mean, I think the CCPA is, right, but right now they're talking about um, $7,500 per incident. So that can add up pretty quickly, especially if you have a lot of uh, customers and there's a breach. Also, once, I, once you know of the breach, you've got 30 days to cure that and to, uh, and to inform that user that it will not happen again. And if not, um, you can face more, more penalties with the CCPA. With the GDPR, we're already starting to see the effect of that. The, an important point, though, that you just mentioned, um, criminal prosecutions. Criminal prosecutions occur not only against um, executives, but they can also occur against attorneys, in-house attorneys. And you need to be careful with that because the laws that we have in place in the United States for in-house counsel is very, very different than the laws in other countries. And if we look at, like, the European Union, Basically, an in-house attorney is, a, is, is looked at as an employee and not, does not have the same attorney-client privilege that we have in this country, in the United States. So therefore, information, if it is something related to, um, to Europe and it deals with organized crime or, or something of importance to Europe, you need to disclose it there. And that can create an issue for attorneys because under the, the U.S. law, if there's an attorney-client privilege and in other countries, they'll be forced to disclose or in some cases, they can face criminal liability. So I see a lot of in-house counsel sort of struggling with all these new laws and some of them try to take it on themselves and others are trying to, or not trying to, but they are hiring outside counsel to assist them with this you know, sort of specialty in terms of making sure they're compliant with all these new privacy issues. I mean, 
Is this making things uh, worse for in-house counsels in the tech industry? Well, the the issue is, yes, you're, you're seeing a lot of changes and you're going to see more of them because we're not only looking, we're looking at all global threats. When you're a company, you have to take a look at all the global threats that are out there and comply with them because different jurisdictions are creating different laws uh, to deal with those threats. And it's a mosaic structure. So you can't look at it in a vacuum. And basically, we're looking at the GDPR, but you also have to take a look not only at how countries are dealing with cyber and in that space and the data transfers, but also like money laundering. There's 41 countries uh, that have agreed to revise and amend their laws um, with regards to the OECD. And those laws are all going to be different as well. So, yes, I would suggest that a, a company, in certain cases, absolutely, you have to have external counsel that can tell you when those laws are changing. And also, because of the other issue where your attorney, your in-house counsel, in some cases is only viewed as an employee, you might and you definitely want to hire external counsel when you're dealing with uh, global threats such as uh, money laundering and things like that because your in-house counsel is not going to have that attorney-client privilege. So for serious issues, you want external counsel so that you can maintain that attorney-client privilege. And that, of course, depends on the laws of each country. You've got you've to figure out which countries, how they view attorney-client privilege, and in what situations does that lawyer, must they disclose or they face um, their own criminal liability for noncompliance. So with all the privacy issues here in the United States, what do we need to do in order to resolve this problem? I mean, do other countries experience the same thing? I mean, in, especially in the EU, are, are, they, are they ahead of us? Are they behind us? Are they have the same challenges? Are they going through the same pains? I mean, what's the status? I, well, I think this is evolving, you know, very, very quickly. And everybody is facing, and our executives are facing major challenges, especially the tech industry, because they're, they're, they're seeing legislation pop up everywhere. New legislation. India, you know, now has the, the basic fundamental right to privacy. Uh, Australia is proposing this, uh, yeah, decryption law. And, um, you know, you're, you're seeing issues in Russia and China. And... I think regardless of where you're located, you're going to, we are all interconnected and, and our lives, everything that we do is basically on that internet. So, so yes, we are facing these challenges with the back doors and national security and, and, and the way people are viewing it, but it is the same issue that we're seeing in, in, in other countries as well. Uh, you're going to continually see a, a, a clash between those countries that believe for example, the Five Eyes Alliance, uh, that believe that mass surveillance is a good thing and this is their approach with the countries that believe that it is a violation of human rights to do it this way and and it discourages whistleblowing. And, and you know, it, we're in an interconnected world. We have uh, issues that are cross-border crimes and the only way, or borderless crimes, I should say, and the only way to deal with this is is basically to to find a way uh, to sit down and, and and look at these vulnerabilities and and come together and cooperate. Okay, Adriana, I've got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more from Adriana Sanford in just a few minutes. You're listening to Task Force Seven Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. <laughs> Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Lab Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response Technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Lab's Inkman SOAR platform. Leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time, maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. Inkman SOAR acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. Streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today. Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash GF7 to request a look at Inkman SOAR live in action. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover life cycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, cybersecurity legal expert, Adriana Sanford. So, Adriana, I want to continue the discussion around some of these top global cybersecurity threats uh, that we were talking about in the, in the last two segments of the show. Can you discuss why legislation is listed among some of these top threats that are going across the world? I mean, why is legislation so important in this whole cybersecurity landscape? Sure. This, is, this has become one of the emerging threats. And, and, and what's happened is the development of new regulations. And we're talking about new regulation, not only like GDPR, but new regulate, there's a whole bunch of new regulation that will bite um, with regards to money laundering, you know, with regards to fighting corruption. The, as I mentioned, the OECD has said that there are 41 countries that are revising and amending their, their laws uh, to fight criminals. And all of this, basically what it does is it adds a significant layer of complexity 
to uh, to compliance. And, you know, we're going to see an increase in compliance and data management costs. And this will, of course, pull attention away from other important initiatives within companies. So these are all new issues that before were not uh, popping up. Uh, another one is the unmet board expectations uh, when companies are exposed to to, to these major incidences, to cyber attacks. This is all new and a lot of executives and companies are, are struggling with how to deal with this and it's taking away attention and obviously money. Uh, new penalties for non-compliance is huge. So I think that, you know, cyber criminals can be divided up into economically motivated criminals and there's, then there's hacktivists, which is really not cyber criminals and there's, there's criminals that commit espionage um, there's all kinds of different ways that we we kind of divide our our uh, threat actor taxonomy, but each group has distinct patterns in, in geographic centers. We talked about criminals, specifically cybercrime uh, folks. So, with 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 cybercrime estimated to cost the global economy like it's like it's four hundred fifty five billion dollars a year or something like that. Is it is it now on par with the global drug trade? I know years ago. Um, there were some statements made by the Treasury Department that cybercrime costs more than all the drug cartels combined, and then that statement was sort of withdrawn, and then somebody came back to it. But nonetheless, I mean, can you discuss discuss the nexus between the nexus between cyber security and, and AML compliance when it comes to this huge amount of cybercrime going on? Sure, and I, you know, back your statement a few seconds ago with regards to to where we are and, and and the concern of whether this is on par. If it's not on par, it certainly is very close to it, and especially if we're looking at the fact that these companies basically are being hacked and uh, ransoms are requested. I mean, in the event these ransoms are being paid, terrorist financing is going to certainly shoot up in this area. Now, understand. The, the nexus between cyber and anti-money laundering uh, compliance, cybersecurity, basically what you have to look at is understand the, the impact and understand how these work together, how financial ins institutions basically fight money laundering. Well, they need to have an in-depth knowledge of their customers and they also need to know the patterns of crime. Well, similarly, with regards to cyber criminals, we just said, you know, they're, 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 they're those criminals or the hack, hacktivists, and they're those that do espionage. Well, each group is distinct and has distinct patterns. In the same way that we are looking at money laundering and we need to understand the, the patterns of crime, we need to understand here. Now, when we're looking at organized crime and we're looking at money laundering, basically what you're trying to do and what you're telling your tellers to do is we need to understand where the money is going, where it was coming from. We have to follow that trail of money to see whether it is actually uh, involves an illegal activity. And a lot of times we can do this, but if they are concealing those trails through electronic payment systems, then that life blood, you know, the lifeblood, um, we're not going to be able to see basically what's going on. So it will stop us from being able to go after those money launders. The future of both cybersecurity and AML needs to be imagined together. And without that, you know, without us looking at the, the increasingly similar objectives and, 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 and handling it at this, you know, together, we're not going to get anywhere. 
So we just talked a little bit about AML compliance, but how about counterfeiting? I mean, how does, how does the nexus between cyber threats and counterfeiting fit in on the global threat landscape? Sure, George, it's, 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 you're right. You know, all of these global threats, we need to, we can't look at them separately. We need to understand how they work together because really our executives and our companies are struggling to combat them and, and to deal with them together. And our governments are, you know, trying to focus on national security. And obviously they're coming from these global threats that are coming from different directions, but they all do on some level, uh, mix and fit together. When we're talking about counterfeit, we're talking about uh, counterfeit and pirated goods, and we're looking at a global value of about $1.7 trillion. And it, counterfeit is huge. It makes up basically seven, five to 7% of the world trade. And if you're looking at costs of jobs, it's about, about 2.5 million jobs worldwide that are lost. And that's about 750,000 jobs in the United States alone. Now, what, what that's are That's huge. Issues? I mean, I actually had no idea the numbers were that big. It Five is. Five to seven percent of the economy is counterfeiting. Right. And this is the concern. This is, this has been basically one of the areas where we see a lot of terrorist financing because basically the market can be 300%. And unlike in drugs, a lot of this information is not known. We, you know, we don't have arrests. They just take off and they leave the counterfeit product behind and they're not in the limelight. So the terrorists prefer this to, to drugs because it's, it's easier. And, and again, this is an issue. This is a, a big concern. And primary sources of counterfeit, uh, China is one of the primary sources of counterfeit of electronics. And this can be really, really a big deal because it threatens the reliability of military hardware and, of course, our critical infrastructure um, in telecom, in energy, and in transportation. So, But Adriana, we, Adriana, they just said that they don't do that. <laughs> well, and this is the concern because... <laughs> If we're, if we're looking at this, um, you know, let's take a look. We recycle a lot of our electronics. We, we, we you know, when we're done using our computers, we send them uh, to a recycling area. And then a lot of that actually makes it back to China. And in the recycling process, the recycling process is not clean. There's a lot of dust. There's a lot of stuff going on. And if we later on don't realize that this is counterfeit and it ends up in our, you know, in, 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 in situations where we're using this for, for military, it can be very, very dangerous because all of a sudden it's not working and defense technologies this can be this can pose a very serious um, threat to us yeah of course especially when we start talking about the supply chain and back doors and there's a whole i'm probably going to do a whole episode on what just you know the, the whole bloomberg article that just came out so but there's there's a lot here there's a lot i mean i talked a little bit about aml talked a little bit about counterfeit is anything i'm missing is there any other, you know, other global threats that have this huge nexus between cyber uh, and that specific threat? And maybe I left Sure. That. I mean, we, we, you know, we could also look at basically how companies and supply chains right now are dealing with uh, human trafficking. That is another huge global threat. And um, in the United States, our laws are not very strong with regards to human trafficking in the supply chain and the and. In other countries like France and the Netherlands, 
those laws have teeth. And to the extent there's human trafficking or supply chain, those companies are going to be responsible. Now, how does cyber fit into this? How does all of this work together? There's blockchain out there. A lot of companies are turning to blockchain with regards to the supply chain. And, and where is the country of origin and what's going on? So we're seeing some benefits and we're seeing, you know, some issues here. Um, with regards to these emerging technologies and how the global threats basically can be combated. But the important thing is for companies to take a look and take a step back and say, okay, where are the issues? How are we dealing with this? We need to document that there is no human trafficking. And, you know, if, if it all fits together because how do we document? We're documenting it through data. We're, do, you know, and, and to the extent there's a cyber issue, a cyber attack, we're going to have issues there too. So how do companies handle these issues? I mean, with these mosaic structures and competing laws that we have and all these competing regulations that sort of seem duplicative and uh, all, not only through states in the United States and some, some, sometimes in some respects, but also when you look at, you know, nationally and cross-border between countries. Right. Well, and this is why new legislation, new regulation is one of the biggest issues uh, for this year. It's, it's listed among the top because we don't know basically um, where it's coming from. And I we, think we it's said important. it was a threat before, but it's really a risk, right? So this is like regulatory risk is what we're talking about. Correct. Right. right. So I, I want to phrase it the right way. I know I, I might even said it in the beginning, you know, we, we, like uh, you know, these new legislations are one of the, the emerging threats, but it's really emerging risk is what I meant to say. And, and, you know, you have this, I mean, I, companies are setting up whole intelligence teams to evaluate regulatory risk because you really need a strategic plan on how you're going to handle all this stuff. Right. Right, and I want to give a heads up there. To the extent you're hiring teams to support and monitor, remember, those also have to be checked. In the same way that we're checking, our compliance team is checking our company and they're checking our suppliers and not the t only the top 25 suppliers, but everyone because those that are not on the radar are the ones that you're going to have problems with. Well, those companies that you are now using to monitor and to support this whole system also have to be checked. So it's very, very important when we're dealing with compliance to have all these processes checked very, very carefully. The same thing with your auditors. If you're having an audit, make sure you're reviewing that audit. Make sure there's a log and that that log is being checked. You've got to go the extra mile um, if you're going to be addressing these issues. It's a new world out there, new legislation. Noncompliance can be very, very severe. You can have criminal liability. Remember your in-house counsel. You've got to make sure that the laws in that country allow you to have attorney-client privilege because if that attorney does not have, in-house counsel does not have the attorney-client privilege, your information will be disclosed. And in that case, you need that external counsel to step in and, 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 and deal with those issues. So, yes, we've got so much going on, and companies need, you know, at this point, there it has to be a global perspective. You can no longer uh, sit in, 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 you know, in your little office, even if you have not, um, if even if you're not operating internationally, the laws have extraterritorial reach and they will affect you. We see that with the GDPR. So, you know, I was asking you before about some of the new legislation that was coming out and in-house counsel and how they were, you know, maybe under-equipped to handle all this that's coming out at once and they needed to hire outside counsel and what kind of problems it created for them. So, 
I think this probably is the, the same thing when it comes to these global threats and the, the nexus between cybersecurity and, and the cyber threats uh, compared to AML and, and, and counterfeiting and, and human trafficking. And I mean, is it any different? I mean, the problems are still the same for in-house counsel, right? They're just kind of compounded. Right. And well, this is a, an important point because your in-house counsel may have a dilemma because the laws compete and conflict with one another in different countries. And therefore, that attorney may have a difficult uh, choice to make because either path they take is, 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 is going to create an issue. Um, and it may be an issue of noncompliance because you, you can't comply with both. But a bigger issue or similar issue is your executive. Your executive in, you know, a decade ago would, would actually rely on that in-house counsel or their attorney. Well, when you are dealing with potential criminal liability because of your senior position and you're dealing with different regions, that executive needs to take an extra step and make sure that he understands exactly what he's getting himself into. If you're relying on your in-house counsel and that in-house counsel has so many other things on their mind and these laws are constantly changing, if it's your territory and you know you've got issues and there's a pattern of crime, you better make sure that you understand what you're stepping into because it can be criminal liability and you can end up in jail um, and that will be in a foreign country. So my advice to those executives is, you know, your territory, figure out what those risks are. Every territory is different. Global threats are different in different territories. You know, you've got money laundering, you've got the layering stage, you've got, you've got all these different areas depending on your industry. Do your homework and make sure that you know how the laws compete or conflict with one another in the space that you're working. Is there a way to resolve all this, uh, this conflict in terms of the legislation coming out and, and privacy and some of these other global threats? I mean, what, what, and strategically speaking, it, how do we sort of consolidate and centralize this legislation and these laws, which is just a monmouth effort. Like, I don't even know if it could be done. I mean, I, 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 the, the people that have to come together just start even talking about this conver you know, conversation and having this dialogue is just huge, right? Is, is it even fathomable that we, we could solve that problem? Well, what we need is we need predictability of results. In, 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 a, in a nutshell, basically, um, what we are trying to, to, to have is a predictability of results so that we know what we're stepping into. We don't have that right now, but if countries start adopting similar frameworks, which is why I am a proponent for countries to adopt the GDPR or a variation thereof, to the extent we can streamline the process like the EU has for their 27 now EU member countries, to the extent we can streamline uh, the way that we approach global threats, you know, and or at least provide predictability of results so that we know our executives know how to handle when laws compete and conflict with one another, where do we go? That's one of the biggest issues out there right now. So, so I do think that with time, um, some of these issues will resolve. Of course, there'll be new <laughs> emerging vulnerable, you know, uh, situations for us, but uh, at least we've got our eyes open. And I think that's a first step. Adriana, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate you spending the time with us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. All right, we want to have you back soon. All right, folks, we've run out of time once again. Uh, before we go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. 
That's the Cybersecurity Hub at CSHUB.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 